go to the Lord in prayer. The song that we just heard on the piano is a powerful song in that it tells the story of the gospel and the lyrics of it say, I lift mine eyes to Calvary. I wonder if we would just lift our eyes to Calvary for a moment and be mindful of what God has done through his only son be reminded of the price that was paid for our salvation and of his name that is above every name that we would bow and confess and exalt him that song also says praise the name of the Lord our God praise his name forevermore and that's what we're here for Father remind us that we have come not just to go through the motions of a religious experience, but we've come to meet with the living God through your word and your spirit as we exalt your son. 
And I pray that as we look at this passage of Scripture together today, we would not just read it as a routine account of something that happened long ago, but that we would look at it and be reminded and be in awe. Uh, Lord, be amazed at all that you have done through your Son. And in that, that we would see that, God, you care for us not only um, in the big moments, but you care for us in every moment of life, and you are always faithful. So we exalt your name, we lift up the name of Jesus, and we pray now, Holy Spirit, that you would be our teacher in these moments. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 3. Our text today is verse 1 through 16. We'll look at it in two different sections. In a message entitled, In the Name of Jesus Christ. Now in the Bible, names are significant. They refer to the character and the purpose of a person, as well as their life direction. If you've never done a study on the origin and the meaning, the significance of every name, it might be of some interest to you. Some have biblical names that have specific meaning. Others have names that are tied to family significance or maybe your heritage or where you're from. There are a lot of different reasons that people choose names that they do. And it's always an interesting thing to see what those meanings are. My first name is Seth. And if you know a little bit about the Old Testament, you'll know that Seth was the third son of Adam and Eve, who's mentioned in the Bible. Uh, Eve believed that God had, repo- had appointed him as a replacement for Abel, who Cain murdered. And his name means appointed or set in place of. So God raised up Seth, who was central to the divine plan at that time. And it was through the seed of Seth that uh, Jesus was born. And then my middle name is Nathan, Nathan being the prophet of old in the Old Testament, uh, who lived during the reign of King David in Israel and is also considered to be in the line of Jesus. He was a member of David's royal court and a close advisor, and the name Nathan means gift of God or God has given. But as significant as each of our names uh, are in their own right, I'm here to tell you today that there is a name that is above every name. There is a name that holds all power and significance, and that name is Jesus. The Bible says that Jesus has been given the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 9 and 10. This name Jesus was announced to Joseph and Mary through the angels, and it means Yahweh saves or the Lord is salvation. That's the literal meaning of it. Transliterated from Hebrew and Aramaic, um, the name is Yeshua, and it's a combination of Yahweh, which is the name of Israel's covenant God, and a verb that means to deliver or to rescue or save. So the English spelling uh, turns out uh, to be uh, Joshua and then translated to Jesus uh, for us from the Old Testament promise to the New Testament realization. And I think that as we've gone through this study of Acts, we've focused on the fact that it's not primarily the Acts of the Apostles, but rather it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit of God 
empowering believers and churches to live for the glory of God, to share the good news about Jesus, and to advance the kingdom of God. You might remember that we looked at Acts chapter 2 in different parts. The early believers devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles, which was written down in the Word of God, to the fellowship collectively of the body of believers, to the breaking of bread, which included general fellowship as well as the Lord's Supper that was incorporated with that, and then to prayer. They were a praying people. We've seen that repeatedly. We're going to see it again today and then more as we move through Acts. And what we looked at last was essentially a composite overview of the church living life together on mission for God. And the passage before us today is verses 1 through 16. And a little bit of backstory about it. Uh, Peter and John go up to the temple together at the hour of prayer. I think this story covers an example of the signs and the wonders that we learned about back in chapter 2. It's an authentication of their ministry. And it also introduces another sermon by Peter. Uh, no good preacher wastes an opportunity for another sermon. And Peter's no different. In his sermon, he's going to go back through the gospel and we're going to be reminded of the persecution that the early church experienced. So as Peter and John approached the temple, uh, they passed through the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful. The old city of Jerusalem was surrounded by a wall with eight major gates. Herod's Gate, the Damascus Gate, the New Gate, Jaffa Gate, Zion's Gate, the Dung Gate, the Eastern Gate, and the Lion's Gate. The eastern gate faces the Mount of Olives, and it's also the gate called Beautiful. And in Hebrew, it's called the Gate of Mercy, which is fitting for what took place when this man was healed. Josephus, the Jewish historian, described the gate called Beautiful on the Temple Mount. He said that it was made of fine Corinthian brass, 75 feet high with huge double doors, so beautiful that it is greatly exceeded only by those covered in silver and gold. There they encountered a man who was lame from his mother's womb. He had to be carried there to ask for alms. He, this is a begging station, of course. There was a strong tradition in those days for people going up to the temple to pray or to worship or to bring a sacrifice that they would bring alms with them. They would bring an offering with them. That offering was used, but then they would also add to that uh, some help for the people that they might encounter along the way who were in need and not, not able to meet their own needs like this man. So we begin reading now in Acts chapter 3, and let's first read through verse 10. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple for the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. A man who was lame from birth was being carried there. He was placed each day at the temple gate called Beautiful so that he could beg from those entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to enter the temple, he asked for money. Peter, along with John, looked straight at him and said, Look at us. So he turned to them, expecting to get something from them. But Peter said, I don't have silver or gold, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk, or get up and walk. Then, taking him by the right hand, he raised him up, and at once his feet and ankles became strong. 
So he jumped up and started to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. All the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized that he was the one who used to sit and beg at the beautiful gate of the temple. So they were filled with awe and astonishment at what had happened to him. As Peter and John approached this man, they fixed their eyes on him. And they looked at him intently and directly and said, look at us. And so he did. Peter says to him, I don't have silver or gold, but what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. They didn't have money to give him, but they had the authority to heal the sick. And this man's life was about to be eternally changed. There's a story from old that is plausibly true about a monk walking with a Roman Catholic cardinal in the Middle Ages after the church had become powerful and wealthy. The cardinal says to the monk as he looks at their surroundings, we no longer have to say silver and gold I do not have. And the monk replied, but neither can you say in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. That's a cautionary tale to remind us that we cannot depend on the firepower of our finances or the creativity of our ministries or the winsomeness of our personalities or any number of other things. All we have to depend on is more than we need, and that is the power of God at work through the name of Jesus Christ. And they wanted the man to experience the life-changing power of Jesus And that's why they said to him what they did. They took him by the hand, lifted him up, and immediately his feet and his ankle bones received strength. And he was a happy, healed man. He leapt up, he stood up, and he walked, and he went into the temple with them. And he was leaping and praising God, and all the people saw him. Now remember, this was a man who had been brought to his begging station day after day for years. Everybody knew who he was. And if you can imagine in our community, if there were someone who were in that condition and we had known him his entire life, and then now all of a sudden there's a miraculous healing. He's changed. Something has taken place. We might not be sure what, but we know something has taken place. We would be amazed as well and want to learn more about what had happened. And the people were filled with wonder and amazement. Now, as dramatic as this physical healing is here, I believe the account of the healing of the lame man has a very direct spiritual parallel. And it is reflected in the outcome of the story. So now we resume reading in verse 11, and we'll go through verse 16. While he was holding on to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astonished, ran toward them in what is called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he addressed the people. Fellow Israelites, why are you amazed at this? Why do you stare at us as though we had made him walk by our own power or godliness? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our ancestors, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and denied before Pilate, though he had decided to release him. You denied the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer released to you. You 
killed the source of life whom God raised from the dead. We are witnesses of this. Verse 16, by faith in his name, his name has made this man strong whom you see and know. So the faith that comes through Jesus has given him this perfect health in front of all of you. God's miraculous healing of the lame man together with his exuberant response drew a lot of attention, attracted a large crowd. The people are filled with wonder and amazement, so they run and they assemble at this place called Solomon's Colonnade. Solomon's Colonnade was a portico of columns that ran the entire east side of the outer court of the temple. They're gathering there to try to find out what has taken place. And Peter took the opportunity to preach. And he, in a determined and clear way, attributes the power to Jesus, who is God's servant. Now, he gives us a pattern to follow in our own ministries and our own life with Christ, that we take no credit at all for what God has done. We don't turn the attention to us and create a need for us that other people will have. We want them to draw near to God and to know him by faith and to receive the healing power of Jesus. So I want to show you, first of all, in this passage that all of us are broken apart from Jesus. We are broken apart from Jesus. This man had been in that condition since birth and he recognized his hopeless condition. To leave his house, he had to have help. He had to be carried there. And his physical need was what was obvious. But his spiritual need was not quite as apparent. Now herein lies part of the problem. We can, with our eyes, see physical limitations. And we understand that the difficulty of them and the challenges that people have to overcome with them. And we can easily identify that. We cannot as easily see spiritual needs. People might look okay on the outside. They might even use the right words and present themselves as though everything is okay. But the reality is, in terms of righteousness and in terms of salvation, we are broken apart from Jesus. And the Bible uses a number of descriptions to speak of the fallen condition of people who are apart from Jesus. Ephesians 2 and verse 1 says that we are dead in our trespasses and our sins. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4 says that we have been blinded by the God of this age. 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 8 says that we are ignorant and uh, incapable, unable to comprehend spiritual truth. 2 Thessalonians 2 says that we are deceived and deluded. And then Mark chapter 1 compares it to leprosy and Mark chapter 4 compares it once again to being lame now let me ask you a very obvious question you're going to know the answer to would any amount of physical therapy or self-help transform this man's life and the answer obviously is no in the same way no amount of man-made religion can transform us spiritually. There's no self-help book that's going to make us right with God. And all who do not know Jesus Christ are lost spiritually. 
To be lost is to be separated from God. It's to be unable to find our way back to God. It, every human being is either lost or found. We're either lost or saved. And we've forgotten this in the church. And I think that's the only way that you can explain why personal evangelism has declined like it has. Because we forget what it was like to be lost. And it's like we get saved and we receive the gift and we know what it's like to be forgiven and we know what it's like to experience the peace of God. But then we forget that everybody else is in the same condition we were in before we got saved. And we're not burdened. We're not broken. There are no tears over the loss. There's no urgency for people who do not yet know Christ. And yet the Bible is clear about our condition. Listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah 53 and verse 6. He said, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. But what about what Paul writes in Romans 3 and verse 10 and following? He said, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There's no one who seeks after God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Was it not Jesus who told the parable about the lost sheep to talk about God's love for the lost? He spoke of the good shepherd leaving the 99 in the fold and being willing to go and to search for the one lost lamb. That one lost lamb would have never found the shepherd on his own. And God is concerned about every individual that he has created. And he has created you for a relationship with him. And without him, you are broken. Now, sometimes people think that they can find their way back to God. I think that's the essence of man-made religion. Man-made religion says somehow we must do something acceptable to God to make ourselves right with God. And I love this illustration. Somebody said that you can imagine a hiker who's lost his way. After hours of fruitless searching for the right path back, he decides to just set up camp in an unknown forest and declare that he is now home. He will no longer try to be rescued. He has no clue where he is, but the surroundings are beginning to seem familiar. Uh, and it's given him the illusion that he's actually been found. And here's the parallel. That's what man-made religion is like. You settle down into these routines that might look like something spiritual. They might look good, but they're all man-centered. And you don't even realize the situation that you're in. You see, the Bible teaches that every individual has a sin nature that is inherited from our first parents, Adam and Eve. So we are sinners by nature, but we are also sinners by choice. Because every individual has disobeyed God on their own and, and has a sin nature by choice. And remember, if we break even one commandment of the law, then we're guilty of breaking the whole law. So this is the condition that we're in. Created for a relationship with God, but lost in our sin. And as it's been said time and again, there is a great gulf fixed that we cannot bridge. Only God could do that for us. And here's what Titus 3 and verse 5 says. He saved us not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy through the washing of regeneration and the renewal by the Holy Spirit. We are broken apart from Jesus, but that leads me to the second point. We need someone to tell us about Jesus. 
the lame man was positioned at the gate and he didn't really even know what he needed he knew he needed help he knew he was hungry he knew he had some basic needs but he's there for alms he's just there for somebody to help him through the day he's just looking for a quick fix of help and god had so much more in mind for him and Peter addressed the people in verse 12. And he said, fellow Israelites, what, why are you amazed at this? He's like, come on, people. Couldn't you have expected this? Why are you staring at us like we did something by our own power or our godliness? He says, that's not the case at all. Peter knew and he wanted the people to know that the man was not healed by their power, but by God's power. And that God had come after this man and met him on this day you might have heard the name of the english poet francis thompson he wrote a very long poem 182 lines actually called the hound of heaven he published it in 1890 and the subject is the pursuit of the human soul by god's love and in the hound of heaven it speaks of god's relentless pursuit of those who are far from him to reconcile them to himself. J.F.X. O'Connor remarked on the Christian themes of this particular poem, and he said, the name is strange, the title he's speaking of here. It startles one at first. It's so bold and so fearless. It does not attract, or rather the reverse. But when one reads the poem, this strangeness disappears. The meaning is understood. As the hound follows the hare, never ceasing in its running, ever drawing nearer in the chase with unhurrying and unperturbed pace, so does God follow the fleeing soul by his divine grace. Church, God is the primary mover. He's the one who seeks us out. If you're saved, before you ever sought after God, God was seeking after you. I think of the words of Ezekiel 34 and verse 11 where he said, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out as shepherds seek out the flocks uh, when they are among the scattered sheep. So I will seek after my sheep. This is a picture of God. Does not the Bible say the Lord is my shepherd? I shall not want. Does, does it not say that Jesus is the good shepherd? He's the chief shepherd. He's the one who has come, and God is the primary mover in that. The Bible says in Luke 19, verse 10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So we know that the Son of Man came to earth. He entered into our world. He left the glory of heaven and invaded time in the incarnation. And when he came, what he did was he brought light into darkness. He brought splendor into squalor, and he brought purity into a world of pollution. And this was the mission that he came on. And not only has the Son of Man come to this earth in the incarnation, but the Son of Man has come to seek and to save. Now I remind you that Jesus came seeking sinners. And one of the things I think that sometimes happens to us is that we forget we were sinners. We see people and we think, well, surely there's no way that person could ever be saved. Oh, they're in such a mess. They are beyond the possibility of salvation. There's not even any point in me sharing. They said no last time, so what's the point of me sharing this time? But then we're reminded by the Holy Spirit that Jesus came seeking people caught in adultery, blind beggars, 
lepers, demon-possessed men living in tombs, self-righteous religious people, tax collectors, prostitutes, drunkards, and more. He came to seek and to save the lost. And the condition of the lost is that people are lost without God. They're born running in their own direction because they're sinners by nature and by choice. And until Jesus seeks us out, we are in that same condition, lost without God, lost without hope, lost without life. But the good news is that God is a seeking God. And he does not leave us in our condition. And evangelism is a supernatural activity. You see, God uses people like us, his servants, as the primary means of sharing the gospel with others. You remember that simple phrase that Jesus used as he was uh, preparing to ascend back into heaven in the Great Commission? And you will be my witnesses. That's us. We are his witnesses. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit. And then Paul's words in Romans 10 and verse 14 and 15, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. You say, well, how does God involve us in this work of evangelism? If it's a spiritual exercise and dependent on the Holy Spirit, how does he involve us? Well, he involves us certainly in the work of prayer. If you're not a praying person, you're probably not going to be an evangelizing person either. If you're not praying and close to the Spirit of God, you're not going to have confidence to, to share with boldness the good news. And then sometimes God just gives us divine appointments. And that's what, what happens here at the gate called beautiful. It's a divine appointment. When you're not expecting it, but you're prayed up and you're ready, and God puts somebody in your path, and the conversation turns to spiritual matters, or they are speaking to you about some challenge that they're facing, and you know that they don't know Christ, and you can feel in that moment, under the leading of the Holy Spirit, that this is a divine appointment. And that's what happened at the gate called Beautiful. And when that happens, God expects us to be faithful to communicate the message, and then God is responsible for the results. So I just want to encourage you here because sometimes we feel the weight of somehow feeling like we should be able to convince somebody to be saved or that if we had just said the right words at the right time or in the right way, certainly they would have accepted the gospel. The reality is when we faithfully share, the Holy Spirit takes the message and he applies it to their heart and then they have to respond to the leading of the Spirit. We are responsible for faithfulness and urgency and boldness in sharing. God is responsible for transforming lives. I also want to give you another word of encouragement. Because sometimes we look around, especially what's going on in our country right now, and it's a little bit overwhelming. You wonder where things are going to end up spiritually and practically. And you think somehow, uh, when you look at the statistics of, of the church and the way things seem to be waning in the West... And you wonder, what's God up to? Sometimes you've got to step back from the microscopic view of this particular context. And you've got to just look at the whole world and say, what is God doing to fulfill the Great Commission in the whole world? Well, if you include all Christian churches and denominations, and this is a very generous definition of Christian, I understand. 
But they say that there are 2.56 billion people in the world who identify with Christianity. Within that number, uh, it is reported that 25 million people came to faith in Jesus across the world last year. Now, if you look at a much more conservative estimate of evangelical Christians, I think that number is probably somewhere around 750 million around the world. It's growing at a rate of 1.8% annually. But here's the parallel. Even if you use the most conservative numbers, nearly 35,000 people come to faith in Jesus every single day worldwide. You know what God's doing today? He's doing the same thing he was doing in the book of Acts. He's adding to his church daily. He is. The church is growing. People are coming to faith in Jesus. This name is powerful. And the early church understood their assignment. They understood that they were to be about sharing the good news. They weren't concerned about surveying their community or uh, strategizing for church growth. They weren't worried about cultural trends. They just followed Jesus. They depended on Jesus. They made Jesus known. And that's what we need because in so many areas of the church today, the church at large, it, it seems like we're putting forward a, a good foot and a good program and a nice presentation, but in many ways, it's just void of the power. And what we need is the power. We need the work of the Holy Spirit in our midst. We need to be praying in such a way and and have such a holy sense of urgency that we see God at work. And when God works, we can look at it and we can say, why are you in awe and looking at us that somehow we had done something? This is all of God. That has to be our mentality as a church, that we desire that. We want to see God at work among us. And we need someone to tell us about Jesus, and we need to be those people that tell other people about Jesus. And that leads me to the third and final point. We need to have faith in Jesus. You'll notice here in verse 13 and 14 that he begins to recount about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of their ancestors. He speaks of what has happened through Jesus and how they had denied him. And this is an incredibly bold sermon. I want you to understand, this is not tiptoeing through the tulips here. This is, this is head-on, bold-for-Jesus sermon that Peter preaches. And it has many parallels with Pentecost. That's not surprising. And God presented Jesus as the worker of signs and wonders, the sacrifice for our sins, raised from the dead, and exalted to the right hand of God the Father. So we learned some things about him. First of all, we learned that he's the servant of the Lord. The religious people, largely his own people, had rejected him. And Pilate wanted to let him go when Jesus appeared before him, but the Jewish mob would have nothing of it. They were intent on crucifying him. So you say, who was responsible for Jesus being on the cross? Well, certainly, both the Jews and the Gentiles were responsible. The Romans would not have crucified Jesus without pressure from the Jews. And the Jews could not crucify Jesus. They had to have the Romans do it for them under their death penalty. So when Peter speaks here of sin and responsibility and he's talking to these people, he's giving a personal sermon. 
Now you understand, sometimes preachers, we, we like to use words like we and they and everybody and like the whole crowd. And we like to kind of bring the temperature down because we're not wanting to say, hey, you're the sinner. You're the responsible one. But that's what Peter does. He stands right in the middle of these people and he says, listen, you delivered up Jesus and denied him. You denied the holy one and the just one. You asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the prince or the source of life. So you ask the question, who was responsible for putting Jesus on the cross? We can say certainly the Jews had a part in it. Certainly the Romans had a part in it. But I tell you what's even more important for us. It was our sins that put Jesus on the cross. So before we do a deep dive and try to blame it on everybody else, we just step back and we look at what God has done for us and why God has done it for us. And he's done it for us because while we were yet sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he's identified in this sermon, not by accident, as the holy and the righteous one. Now, let me make a connection here for you. This is a very important connection. The term, the holy one, is used more than 40 times in the Old Testament as a glorious title for Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. And when Peter references the holy and the righteous one, he's saying this is God in the flesh. He's the author and the prince of life. He is the initiator of new life. But now we come to the pinnacle of the whole story. Let's focus it in again now on verse 16. Verse 16 says, By faith in his name, his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. So the faith that comes through Jesus has given him this perfect health in front of all of you. Now the key to the physical and the spiritual healing of this man in the name of Jesus is that he had faith. Salvation points to forgiveness for sins and eternal spiritual deliverance. And we are saved from the wrath of God and judgment upon our sin when we place our faith and trust in Jesus. And it was the death of Jesus on the cross and the power of his resurrection that secured our salvation so that we can be here today and we can say, we're not saved by works. We're not saved by the power of man. We're not saved by our own efforts. We're not saved by the religion of man. We are saved by grace through faith, period because of the good news of what Jesus has done. Fully trusting in him and embracing him as Savior and Lord. John 3.16 says, For God loved the world in this way that he gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. But then listen to what verse 17 says. For God did not send his Son into the world that he might condemn the world, that, but that the world, listen to this, might be saved through him. So Jesus says, look, if you're apart from me, you don't have my righteousness, you're lost already, you're condemned already. I didn't come to condemn you, you're already condemned by your own sin. You're already condemned under the wrath of God because of what you had done. But Jesus came for us to die for us that we might be saved through him. That's the good news. That's what we proclaim. That though we are sinners, Christ died for us. And that we can be reconciled to a holy God. So I ask you this question as I come toward a conclusion of the message. What is your testimony? What is your testimony? You say, what's a testimony? Well, if you just said, what's a testimony? 
That's a good sign. You need one and you need the Lord Jesus. But just in case you're not sure what a testimony is, let me tell you. A testimony is your short story of what your life was like before you met Jesus, how you came to faith and embraced Jesus as Savior and Lord, and then what has your life been like since you met Jesus? That's your testimony. And all of us should be ready to share that testimony at any time. And I was thinking this week as I was preparing for this message that I have been a follower of Jesus for 45 years. February is my spiritual birth month. And I'm thankful for this 45 years because let me tell you, I've not always been faithful. But God has. Even in my lowest moment, when I was in my darkest hours and was not doing the things that I needed to be doing, God never let, hold it, let, let go of me. And I remember the night that I got saved just as good as I can this day. I was only seven years old, and it was a Sunday evening service at our church. And I was seated in the back of the church, about five rows from the back corner with my family. And it was a long, rectangular uh, church building sanctuary. And I remember the night. That night was like any other night, but the preacher extended the invitation. The invitation I'd heard many times. I'd heard the gospel. I was raised understanding the gospel, brought up in a Christian home, so thankful for that. Thankful for people that believe the gospel. But he gave the invitation that night, and there was something different. And the Lord got a hold of me. And I didn't know everything there was to know, but I knew that I was lost. I knew I didn't want to go to hell. I knew I was a sinner. And I placed my faith and trust in Jesus that night. And God's never let me go. That's my testimony. God took hold of me, and God never let me go. Because he's good. He's faithful. What's your testimony? What's your story? If you have faith in Jesus, you have a lot to be thankful for. And if your faith is not in Jesus, I invite you to repent and believe and become a Christian today because we need to have faith in Jesus. And I say this in closing, it's the name of Jesus that makes us strong. We take no credit for any of it. When we get to heaven someday, the awe and the amazement that these people had when they saw what had happened to this man, we're going to experience an awe and an amazement like that. This is going to be, let me tell you, it's going to be exponential. It's going to be exponential, and I look forward to it. I'm anticipating it. I'm ready for it. I'm waiting for whatever God has for us. But in the meantime, we've got to be faithful about doing our Father's business. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray and close.